Well, good morning. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to think about hard topic, we ask, please, that you would fill us with your Spirit, that we might hear your Word as your Word and respond to it rightly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what do we do when things go wrong? Over the last few months, we've been thinking about marriage uh, and, and what a wonderful picture it's been. Marriage in all its goodness, its greatness, the relationship instituted by God, given by God, created by God for His purposes. From the very beginning, male and female joined together to fill the world, to subdue it, to reflect the relationship of God and His people. Wonderful picture. A picture that's included singleness in all its forms, the unmarried, the widows, the widowers the call that God makes on us to live out our circumstances to the praise of His glory. And yet the reality is, for so many of us, that it's not that wonderful, is it? That there's struggle and turmoil. Marriage, marriage at its best is amazing, that the highs of marriage are the loftiest of peaks, and yet marriage at its worst, well, can be almost impossibly challenging. Conflict, neglect, abuse, selfishness, unmet expectations, the impacts of substance abuses, the stresses, the pressures of life. In 2019, which was the last year pre-pandemic, if if you can remember back that far, there were around about 140,000 marriages in Australia. Do you want to have a guess at how many divorces? the better part of 50,000, one in three. I mean, it's not that of those 150 who got married that year, 50,000 got divorced, but 2020, the first year of the pandemic, 78,000 marriages. Now, that's understandable, right? The restrictions were in place, people couldn't get married. How many divorces? Still, the better part of 50,000. In fact, slightly more than the year before. We don't have statistics yet for the last two years, for last year and this one, but I can only imagine that that trend will go up even more. Now, that's just formal breakup, right? That's marriage and divorce. That's the bit that our government recognises. That doesn't even paint a picture of all the other things that happen, the informal, moving in and moving out and breaking up and fighting and... Nor does it paint a picture of what's happening inside marriages... These numbers are from 2016 and if they're as small on there as they are for me on there, then you may not well be able to read them. But you'll see that on the very left-hand side, physical and or sexual violence by a current or past partner, one in six women have experienced it. One in 16 men and I reckon that's probably an underreported number. Physical or sexual violence by a current partner or past partner. One in five of all women say they've been physically or sexually abused in some way and one in six men have experienced emotional abuse, manipulation, deserting, abandonment. And this doesn't capture online behaviour, I mean who knows what else is happening in the underbelly of the internet. Look, we, we don't need statistics, do we? I mean, we know the truth in our own lives. Just this last week I heard about another family Broken up, she's left, taken the kids, he's angry, confused, doesn't understand what happened. 
She's sick of having to look after him, feels like he's just another child in the house. She was expecting Mills and Boone and got him. He doesn't know why it's ended like this. Whether it's our friends, our relatives, perhaps our own family, we we know the truth, don't we? I suspect there's not one person sitting in this room who hasn't somehow been touched by the pain of things going wrong. It's a hard topic today. There's no way around it. It's a hard topic. It's hard because our lives are messy. Whatever situation and circumstances and people you want to talk to, there is no simple answer. You can never just say, well, he's right and she's wrong. She's right and he's wrong. And the solution is obvious to everyone. Just do. It never works that way. It's hard because it's so personal. It's painful. It, it, It touches us at the deepest bits of our being. And it's hard because what Jesus has to say is incredibly countercultural. We, we, the air we breathe, the world that we live in, what Jesus says is a profound challenge to that, as we'll see very soon. And I'll tell you what, because it's so hard, we need all the more to make sure that who we listen to is God, the one who created it from the beginning, if you remember the last few weeks. Now, here's where I want to go in our time this morning. I've got five headings, you'll find them in your handout. We're going to cover a lot of ground. I want to talk firstly about why things go wrong. We need to understand the origin, the heart of the matter. What is going on that there's so much breakdown? Secondly, I want to talk about Jesus' heart. What's the principle, what's the mindset we ought to have as we consider these topics? Thirdly, I want to share with you some wisdom, some recommendations, some tips. And then fourthly, talk about God's God's ways when it really is broken. That's where we're going and firstly let's talk about why marriages go wrong. Why do the relationships break down? Now humanly speaking, if you were going to come up with a list of reasons why relationships fail, the list would be as long as your arm. You pick a topic and there's been a marriage that's broken down over it somewhere. I mean there's a couple that are common, right? The, the modern lack of commitment, I'm in it until I don't feel like it anymore and then I'm out of it. I mean that's, that's a common one in the world. Perhaps the impact that other people have, whether it's the in-laws or even your own children, the stresses of raising these little people, or children who are ill-disciplined and the impact they have on families. Individualism, the mindset that I have my way and once I don't feel like it anymore, well then off I go, or unmet expectations or the impacts of substances or gambling, or the list goes on and on and on and on. But the Bible points to one main cause... One reason, one, one thing that's at the heart of all of it. And that is the reality of sin. Now, I'm not talking, when I say sin, about sinfulness. I'm not talking about the fact that we all do bad things to each other. I mean, that obviously has an impact. But that's not the heart of the matter. What I mean by sin is our broken relationship with God. That's kind of strange to think, isn't it? That our relationship with God would be the thing that impacts our relationship with each other. But that's exactly what happens. Every failed marriage, every damaging relationship, every destructive behaviour has at its heart, as its cause, the broken relationship with God. Let me show it to you in the very first marriage. Come all the way back to the start of your Bible, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We're only three chapters in, right? We've done a lot in Genesis 1 and 2, the glorious beginning when God created it, 
We've kind of been leaving Genesis chapter 3 until this week, because look what happened next. They disobeyed God, okay? They broke the relationship with God. God said, don't do that, that one thing, don't do it. And they did it. And what was the consequence of their broken relationship with God? Come to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. As they both take, as they both eat of the fruit that God said don't. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What a strange act. They disobeyed God and immediately in their shame they hid from each other. They covered up their differences. I don't know which bits they covered, we're not told, but we can probably guess, right? The bits that are the most different. But isn't that exactly a metaphor for what happens? The bits that are the most different are the bits that we're afraid to share. Those are the bits that we don't feel safe. What a contrast, look back up at chapter 2 and verse 25, when they were in relationship with God, the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. You break your relationship with God and what happens is essentially you put yourself in the place of God. I am God. That's what you do every time you say to God, well, your ways aren't particularly good. I can see better ways. Oh, all you're saying is I'm a better God than you are, God. I'm the one who matters the most. I'm the most important one. And so no wonder that then when we come up against another person who's also saying, I am God, I mean, no one says this explicitly. I haven't yet met someone who walks around saying, I am God. We call those people psychopaths, right? Stay away from them. But even though we don't say it, we believe it. That's at the essence of sin. I matter the most. But you say, I matter the most. And we clash. <clears throat> We need to understand the origin of conflict, that it's born out of our conflict with God, if we're ever going to understand the solution. This is the solution begins with the restoration of that relationship. You have to be a recipient of grace, a recipient of forgiveness, a recipient of cleansing and restoration, a recipient of God's Spirit to start to change you so that you stop being God. And you start being humble before Him and before others. What we need is the death of Jesus to wipe us clean and the work of His Spirit to change us. Now that's not to say that someone who isn't a Christian can't have a good relationship. There are many non-Christians I know who have lovely relationships. But actually it is to say that there's something at His very heart that they are missing, that they don't have. For they aren't recipients of grace, having been taught what you need to be able to have a truly flourishing relationship. God is kind and in God's kindness they may stumble onto some of the aspects of it. The worldly research keeps going, oh hey look, that's what makes marriages really good. And the Christians go, yeah, it was in the Bible 3,000 years ago, well done guys, you finally got there, right? But in God's kindness people find this. What we need when things go wrong, is to have our hearts shaped to be like Jesus' heart. Can I show that to you? Can I show you Jesus' heart about marriage? I want to show you in Matthew 19. So come back to that second Bible reading in Matthew 19. 
we see Jesus' heart in this discussion with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees had been apparently having this long-running debate about what Deuteronomy 24, which was our first Bible reading, meant. What was it that, what was displeasing, right? If a man marries a woman and then finds something displeasing in her, and they were trying to decide, what does that mean? Is it, well, is it that she burnt the cooking? (laughs) Sorry, mate, you're out. Can't be having that. Is it that she's just gotten a bit old and frumpy and lost the fizz? Or is it immorality and you can only divorce her if she's right? They're having this debate and so they come to Jesus and they come to test Him. Verse 3, some Pharisees approached Him to test Him. Now, I don't know if this is a trap that they're setting out or, or they just want to know, you seem to be a pretty good teacher, just solve the problem for us already. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Solve Deuteronomy 24 for us, please. Like, just, just tell us and we'll be done, right? We, we can stop having our arguments. Now, again, Jesus' answer shows us the heart. If, if you get nothing else today, listen to this. Because this is God's mind about marriage. This is God's heart. Listen to Jesus' reply. Haven't you read, he replied, verse 4, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female... And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Male and female from the beginning, those different bits that they went and covered up are purposefully different for they join them and unite them physically, literally and metaphorically into one, a union made by God, united by God. And I'll tell you, this is true for all marriages, by the way. This isn't just Christian marriage, right? It points back to creation. This is true for every union. Marriage is serious. It's real. It is a God-given, God-made union. Now just ponder for a moment, Jesus was asked point blank about divorce, just solve it for us, tell us how, tell us when, just lay it out would you? Yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, no, maybe, right? Just do that and we're happy. And what did he say? God has joined two into one. Who do you think you are to separate that? Now the Pharisees, I don't know if this is them springing their trap or if they're just confused. Hang on. Verse 7. Well, hang on, Jesus. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers? If you're saying no... Now, can I just point out the heart that these men had? How dangerous it is. But hang on, Jesus, we want a way out. It's, it's there, it's in the law, there must be a way out. In fact, their heart was so twisted that they end up just getting the Bible plain wrong and completely missed the point of marriage. Why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce. Moses didn't command a thing about giving a certificate of divorce. Listen to Deuteronomy 24 again, and I've got some little pictures for you. 
to illustrate. This is about the quality of my drawing, so stick figures are appropriate. It says, if a man marries a woman, right, we've got a man marrying a woman, but she becomes displeasing to her because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a certificate of divorce, hand it to her and send her from his house, right? She's gone. Now notice so far, no commands. This is just a description of reality. If this happens... Now, if after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, okay? The second man, he hates her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and he sends her away or if he dies. Okay, this is important. Do you see how we're going here? This is quality, quality illustration. Here's the command. The first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. What has defiled her? Which bit in all of this was the bit that defiled her? Well, actually, it was this bit, wasn't it? It was the getting married again. If, if, if they had broken up, and they've, if they'd gone to this bit and then just done this, right? There's no defiling. They broke up and got back together again and broke up and sure, Moses says, I guess it's a bit weird. You should probably get some counselling, but right? This. Now the Pharisees had missed it so completely. Oh, Moses commanded us to divorce it. No, he didn't. What Moses said was that in that moment where you send her away and she gets remarried, she's committing adultery. In fact, Moses is saying the opposite. That in divorcing her and sending her away, you're defiling her. You read Moses right, Moses isn't commending divorce, he's regulating it at best. Right, he's telling you what not to do. And Jesus reiterates that to him. Come back to Matthew 19 and verse 8. Jesus told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. You see, in this passage, it's both ways. You divorce your wife and you get remarried, you commit adultery too. You divorce her and she gets remarried, she is defiled by that relationship. The, the Bible doesn't teach divorce. It's a strange idea, isn't it? The Bible teaches marriage. It, it tells us the origin of marriage. It tells us who made marriage and why he made marriage and how marriage ought to function. And so much about marriage. Divorce just kind of appears. Created by sinful people because of the hardness of our hearts. This is why, by the way, the heart matters so much. The Pharisees, their heart was wrong. They were so concerned to find a way out that they'd nitpick at the law. Ah, ha, ha, but yes, see, there's my circumstance. I can now do it. Off I go. Without stopping to think, no, what is Jesus' heart? Marriage is serious, a real union made by God for God's purposes and it's not up to people to dissolve it. However bad it gets, you promised. For better, for worse. He didn't set limits to worse. The disciples understand how serious Jesus is. I mean, look at verse 10. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with a wife is like this, it's better not to marry. I mean, we're not being flippant here. This isn't facetious. Ah, just suck it up and get on with it. They understood what Jesus is saying. Hang on a second, Jesus. 
Really? I tell you, it's why those sermons on dating and singleness that you might have just thought were an aside, it's why they were so important to get it right at the start. Jesus' teaching was countercultural back then when they had arranged marriages. So, Joe, even if we go back to that, I'm sorry, it's still going to be a hard word. And it's countercultural today, isn't it? To our individualistic mindset, hang on a second, what do you mean I have to sacrifice? What do you mean I have to do something that I might not want to? See, when, uh, when things go wrong, what do we do? Here's what you do you fight for your marriage. You don't fight in your marriage, I mean, if you have to have conflict, by all means, but do it well. You fight for your marriage. You fight with everything you've got, with your strength and your mind and your time and your energy and your money and your resources and your friends and your life, if you have to. You follow the example of God Himself. Throughout the Bible, the relationship of God with His people is pictured as a marriage. We're going to do a lot more, that's next week's sermon, so I won't preach it today. But enough to say that time and again, this was a marriage where things went wrong. Where one party continually was unfaithful to the other. God went and found Israel, this, this waif on the side of the road, and He beautified her made her glorious and married her and shared of His royalty with her and she prostituted herself with everybody who passed by. In fact, it wasn't even prostitution because she paid them to sleep with her. And God pursued relentlessly. Oh, He he sought the the restoration, He wanted the sin to be gone, it wasn't, I'm just going to go and find this abusive wife and take her back as she is. I want her white and pure and spotless and clean. But I'm going to pursue that with everything that I have, even in the end, my own death, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I, can I say to you, especially if you the men, the husbands here today, can I put this particularly as a charge on you? Of course, women, wives, fight for your marriage. I'm not saying you can't. Please, please, please do. But men, if you are the head of the house, If it is your responsibility to lead your wife, then this rests on you. And I think it rests on you as well, because so often men are the unaware ones. The wife is sitting there thinking, man, we're in trouble. And he's like, hey, what a beautiful day, right? And it's just... Here's a little exercise for you. If you're married, ask your spouse to rate the health of your marriage from zero to ten. Zero, one of you is packing the bags and walking out the door. Ten, it's great. Your, Your partner's you're working together for the gospel, sex is good, you're talking well, you resolve conflicts together. Right? Both of you share that number with each other. Now, personally, I say that the lowest number is the health of your marriage. Now, others maybe will take the average, <laughs> take into account personality differences. But actually, if one of you is a zero, then your marriage is a zero, because one of you is about to walk out. Can I encourage you to do that often? Do it regularly, once a month. How's the health of our marriage? Gents, we need something to help us see where we're going. Now, there's the heart, right? We fight for it because it is this real union that God has created between a man and a woman. Well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to fight for our marriages? I'm going to give you six recommendations very quickly. If you want more details on them, come back to 10 o'clock or to 6 o'clock. Here we go, six recommendations very quickly. Number one, get close to Jesus. 
It might sound strange, right? We're saying that you need to fight for your marriage and the way you fight for your marriage is by doing something else. Actually, that's exactly how you do it. If the heart of our conflict is sin, then what we need is to be close to Jesus. We need to be recipients of grace and we need to be taught to repent of our sin. Both of those come from Jesus. I have yet to meet a couple who's struggling, who comes for help, where they both say, oh man, spiritually right now we're flourishing but our marriage is rubbish. Inevitably, the marriage is rubbish and gee, we're distant to Jesus right now. Now, it's not to say that if you're close to Jesus, you're going to guarantee you have a good... It's not to say that, but it certainly goes the other way. Get close to Jesus, talk to Him, listen to Him, learn to love Him more, learn to value Him, be disciplined to get close to Him. Number two, how to fight for your marriage? Talk well talk well. Communication matters so much. Do you want to know the goal of a good conversation? What makes a good conversation? Or what makes a conversation a good one? Where both of you feel heard. Isn't that simple? And not simple. A good conversation isn't about making a decision, for example. You could say, well, a good conversation is where we resolve the issue. That's not true, because I could just say, shut up, we're doing that. There you go, we've resolved the issue. That's a bad conversation. Where you both feel heard, and the way you know that you both feel heard is if you are confident that the other person can represent you well. That I walk up to your spouse and say, hey, what does so-and-so think about this? And they they can tell me. And you're like, yeah, I I know, they're going to nail it. I know they've heard me. Get close to Jesus, talk well. Number three, fight well. Not give as good as you get. That is not fighting well. Oh man, we had a Barney last night. Yeah, you should see how I left him, right? That's, that is not good conflict. Good conflict is where you come out of it, where you have resolved together what you are going to do. Where you make decisions that you use this little word, us rather than the little word, I or they. Right? We decided that. That's good outcome from conflict. Now, let me show you this little list. This is, uh, comes from a number of different places. These are the most common things people fight over, and I've put in red the two that I think are most important. Isn't it weird that we have conflict over conflict? I mean, that's just one of the things that people fight over, right? We fight over how to talk. We fight because we have different personalities or different expectations. We want to spend our money differently, do different things with our leisure time, the amount of sex and how we share affection with each other, children, how we're going to raise them, the impacts of extended family and our our friends, what we're going to do in our roles, who's going to wash the dishes, who's going to go to work, religion and spirituality. These are things that couples fight over time and time and time again. And the research, and this may be encouraging and may be discouraging, is that 68% of conflicts are never resolved in marriage. You ever had that experience? Why are we talking about this? We talked about it last week. We resolved it already. Didn't we decide that what we were going to do was, and here we are fighting about it again? Actually, that's normal. There's there's the encouragement bit. I mean, it's kind of discouraging, but there's the encouragement bit. It's just normal. Difference in personality just means that that's true. So it means that being kind as we fight, being gentle as we have conflict, remembering this is important. The keys to all the rest of these, I think, are communication and conflict resolution. And these are tools that can be taught. I I can teach you how to talk well. 
I'd have a good conversation. If you, if you look at your own marriage and you think, we do not do well in these two areas, you can learn to do it. Come and ask for help. Get close to Jesus, talk well, fight well. Number four, love well. Do you know your spouse's love language? If you're a married person, do you know how your spouse likes receiving affection and giving affection? Know your spouse's love language, and here's the key, speak it often. Here's one list, here's one particular way of just, there's lots of others, here's how one guy said, right? There's five love languages, acts of service, gift giving, physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation. Which is yours? Let's start there. Have you told your spouse that this is how you like to be affirmed, to love, to be loved? Do you know your spouses? Again, this particular guy says everyone has two, one main one and one kind of minor one. So know them both and speak them. Now here's the point though, you want to speak their language, not your own language. Right? It's like the husband whose uh, who's love language is acts of service and he thinks one day I'm going to show my wife how much I love her, I'm going to go put the washing on. Right? He's like, oh, she's going to love this. And she's sitting there thinking, finally... I mean, come on, man, pick up, the, you know, you're going to do some of the domestic chores around the house. It's about time, right? Whereas her love language is gift giving and she keeps buying little bits of junk for him every time she's at the shops. And he's like, why are you buying me junk? My study is full of these little things. Stop buying me junk. She's like, but I love you. It's like, you're speaking different languages. Right, compared to the husband, the wife, whose love language is words of affirmation and the husband comes out every morning and says, honey, I love you. You are amazing. I'm so proud of you. To see you flourish, the woman of strength that you are, the way you, you go out into the world with courage and with compassion. Ah, gee, that's wonderful. Right? The, the wife who knows her husband's love language is the physical touch, and so she comes to bed naked, right? And it's just. Actually, I think any man will like that one. Doesn't matter your love language. You get the point. Know your spouse's love language and speak it often. Their language not your own. Number five, surround yourself with wise and helpful friends. Do you want to know who a wise and helpful friend is? It's one who's going to fight for your marriage. That's a wise and helpful friend. There's lots of people who will fight for you. I'm on your side. Oh, that bastard. Ah, she's horrible. The friend who will fight for your marriage is a rare thing. And a precious thing. In fact, can I say to you, whatever your circumstances, be that friend. Be known as the person who, when your friend's marriage is in trouble, they're going to come to you because they know that you're going to fight for their marriage. And then number six, get help and get help early. Men in particular, it's okay. It's okay to put your hand up to say, actually, we're in trouble, we need help. Again, the research says most couples wait on average six years to get help from the moment where they should have, from the moment where they needed it. And so often by then it's just too late. Things have just gotten bad. So, break down because of sin. We've got to have Jesus' heart that sees marriage as this powerful thing. God tells us to fight for it. But what happens when it's truly broken? What happens when it's just bad? 
Come to 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll go quickly through this. Come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul was speaking into a truly messy situation. I mean, you want to talk about situation going bad, right? In the church, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud of it, right? That, that was the situation he was writing into. You want to talk about things going bad, that is messed up. He's talking into a situation where there's mixed marriages, Christians who are married to non-Christians, non-Christians who had married and then one had become converted. And one, what do we do in this mess, Paul? Look what he says, chapter 7 and verse 10. To the married, I give this command. Actually, not I, but the Lord. I think this is Matthew 19 that he's referring to. Jesus said this, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Give that, that, that heart again, right? That, that union that God has made, don't leave. But also the recognition of the reality that if you do, it may happen. This isn't commanded. You're not told to leave. Jesus hasn't said, no, there are certain circumstances in which you must. But if you do, stay single or be reconciled. If you must separate, do, do it. There may well be times when it's necessary. But you do so with the expectation that the view to reconciliation now of course reconciliation implies that there's a problem isn't there reconciliation implies that there are issues that there are real this isn't facetious not just say well go back and be friends again and get over it come on reconciliation may well require naming sin and pointing out the things that are bad and deal with it it's possible that marriage may be just such a bad state that you need to separate for the sake of creating some space to deal with it in fact, it may even end up being a permanent separation. But notice that's not the same as divorce, is it? Divorce kind of implies this expectation or, or at least this freedom of remarriage to say, no, no, I am separated and that is truly gone such that I am now a free agent. Whereas separation is living in the hope of reconciliation, living in the hope that God might somehow miraculously bring about restoration and you know what sometimes it can take a miracle can't it abuse sadly is far far too common you remember this picture again far too common sadly even among god's people can i be very clear there is absolutely no justification no excuse no bible teaching or doctrine to ever abuse another person, let alone in marriage. I, it, it breaks my heart when I see the world, oh, you Christians with your doctrine of the man being the head of the wife, that's just, that's just an enabling abuse. No, it's not. Husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, gives herself up in sacrifice for her. Where's the abuse in that? Oh, he doesn't lead me right, so I'm going to make him do it. No. Now, the problem, of course, is that none of us are going to be sitting here thinking, oh, I'm an abuser. The, the abuser doesn't sit there thinking, well, that's me. And it's challenging, isn't it? When is it abuse? I mean, we, we had a fight last night, right? Is, is, is she an abuser now because we had a conflict? Or the other week, he said something nasty to me. Is, that, is he an abuser? 
Abuse is defined as persistent behaviour. It happens over and over again. That creates danger for one of you, or both, such that you live in fear. There's no room for it. No physical or sexual violence, emotional or psychological abuse, right? To, to abandon someone, to humiliate them, manipulate them. Coercive control, no space for it to, to withhold money so that they can't do something or limit their movement or freedom or friendships to isolate them. Stop it. Stop it. Now, can I say to you, if, if people start coming to you and kindly and gently suggest that maybe something is wrong, then please listen to them. Maybe they're wrong, okay? Maybe they're completely wrong and they've got to, and they're just, what they're saying is baseless and wicked but stop and listen because maybe maybe just maybe they're right and god forbid someone had come and warned us and we hadn't stopped to investigate and then somewhere down the track we realized oh no actually i i have been abusing them and can i say if you are being abused if you are somebody who does not feel safe in their marriage the bible does not give your spouse permission you aren't honoring them necessarily by just sitting and copying it it's not dishonoring to them to seek help in fact it may well be the godly thing to do for their sake get safe and get help sin is sin it must never be excused never be excused but mind you, it's not on you to fix it as well. If you are somebody who's being abused, it's not on you to be the one who turns them around and makes them a good person somehow. We have a congregation member who just, in, in, in the last while, um, had to move out and take out an AVO against their partner. Right? To create the space needed to start to maybe somehow perhaps find a beginning to what could possibly at some point in the future maybe be the road to a bit of a safe space and restoration. No. Which leaves us then with the last question, can a Christian ever divorce and remarry? Now I, I very intentionally left this completely at the end because everything else comes first. The heart that Jesus has this fighting for your marriage, even this view to separation with the expectation of God's miracle of reconciliation. You know what? The Bible doesn't command you to divorce. Singleness is godly and living as a separ separated leaves that option available. The problem is a little bit that in Australia we're very confused. Here's the definition of marriage according to Australian law. Uh, the, the Marriage Act of 1960-ish, whenever it is. A marriage is defined as the union of two people entered into voluntarily for life to the exclusion of others. Now we think that's pretty good, we might add a couple of more little bits to it, but by and large that's not too bad, is it? Until you see the definition of how you can get a divorce. Do you know how you can get a divorce in Australia? Here's how you get a divorce. To apply for divorce, you must have been separated for at least 12 months. That's it. The divorce can be initiated by one person or both. So after you've lived apart for 12 months, the other person can divorce you without you having any say at all. Now, if it's a little bit complicated, you might have to go to a court, but the court's going to grant it. So Australia is very confused about this. Divorce is as easy as you want, right? Marriage is, well, we're married until we die or 12 months spent apart, whichever comes first, right? That, that's sort of the new definition of marriage. Now, here's our passages we've looked at today. Do allow for 
the circumstances where the other person in the marriage has so destroyed it that the wronged party, if I can put it that way, is free. In Matthew 19, it's where the other person commits adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7, it's where the unbeliever leaves. You don't have to divorce and you don't have to remarry, even then. You can live in the hope of restoration. But should you, then I would want to be very confident, I would want you to be very confident that you genuinely, truly, from the bottom of your heart, have tried every last thing available to you to bring reconciliation and restoration. It's a hard teaching, isn't it? Better not to marry, say the disciples. Actually, for some, that may be true. But you know what? Even, Even our marriages in their kind of poor, sinful state point to something amazing. Because they point us to the marriage of Jesus, to his bride, the church. That's where we're going to finish up next week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we're so grateful for you that you speak into our world. We're so grateful for you that you have loved your people through sin and hardship, through all the muck that we've done. We're so grateful for you that you have loved us in Jesus. And so would you teach us to love like you have. Amen.